0: Good morning, Crossroads. How we doing? It's so great to see. I want to welcome our Lexington campus and those of you online joining us. We're thrilled to have you with us. We know with everything going on with COVID, we're thrilled to be able to be with you wherever you are in your living room, in your kitchen, uh, in your bedroom. Uh, we're thankful to be there with you wherever you are online. We love you. Lexington, we love you over there. We're, we appreciate you. Uh, before we dive in, a couple big things coming up. We have our 24 hours of, of Scripture reading and prayer. We're going to be reading through the New Testament over a 24-hour period, every minute, every moment. Uh, only pause will be for our 5 p.m. service on Sunday. But from 2 p.m., uh, really around 2 p.m. on Sunday, November 1st, until 2 p.m. on Monday, November 2nd, right before the vote. We're going to take a time as a congregation to really dedicate ourselves to prayer and really to seek the Lord and read through the Bible over a 24-hour period or read through the New Testament. And so we want you to sign up here at Park Avenue. You can sign up in our lobby today. And we'd love to get you signed up a 20 minute increment where you can come in. We're going to live stream that where you can read through the New Testament with us or have a moment where you can pray. I would recommend doing 20 minute slot to read and 20 minute slot to pray. Spend 40 minutes and just join us. And what we want to do is bathe our country in prayer. We want to prepare our hearts for this vote that's coming up. We want to remind ourselves that God is on the throne and whichever way this election goes, God is still in control and sovereign. He knows exactly what he's doing to bring about his great plan of the gospel to go forth and his name to be glorified. And so we want to take a moment uh, just to really focus our attention during this season. So go out, sign up afterwards. I know Lexian, you got the chance last week. You can also still let us know if you'd like to sign up November 1st and November 2nd. You can pick any spot. And by the way, we need people uh, that are willing to be the crazies that come in at 3 in the morning. At 2 in the morning, people that are willing to to kind of sacrifice and let this be really a spiritual exercise for our church as we read through the New Testament and spend some time in prayer for our country. And so we hope you'll join us for that. Uh, We want to focus our attention on what God is doing and what God may be doing even in the midst of our country to pour us back to himself. God is at work. Even when we don't see it, even when we don't understand it, God is at work. And so we want to have our our ears attuned, our hearts in 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 connection to what the Father wants in the midst of this. If you want to take your Bibles out with me and turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, there is one in the seat back in front of you. If you turn with us to page 874, Luke chapter 15, page 874. I want to mention one thing as we turn there. Obviously. In the world that we live in, uh, there's very little trust for any anything of of influence, and uh, rightly so. Right, we live in a world where you hear the words "fake news" quite often, and and you wonder who can I really trust. And I just want you to know, I- I- if there's ever a time in, in a season in in the Christian journey of the church in America, uh, where there's great suspicion it's now. And I want, I want you to hear this from me. Um, here at Crossroads, we consider ourselves a family. And if you're new here, uh, we take great care. Yes, we're a large church, but we are a family. And I just want to say to you, if you ever have a question... Uh, there is nothing hidden about what we do here. There is nothing hidden about the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is nothing hidden about vision. Uh, if you want to know anything that's going on, you, you think, man, I want to know what's happening there. I want to know, hey, we heard about this announcement. What's going on there? W- just stop by next steps. We would, any of our staff members were, are willing to answer that. And One of the things that we pride ourselves in is, yes, we have elders. Our elders are our, our ruling body here. They're our board here at our church. And then we have staff that function. Uh, but what's great is after we make a decision as a board, there's public knowledge. We, we've got nothing hiding as an elder team uh, of what's going on. So if you have a question about anything, I say this because in this environment, we just want you to know that we are open books. Uh, By the way, you can ask me anything, I'll tell you. So um, uh, we want you to know we're family and we entrust uh, with each other that we're going to share our hearts together in our vision uh, to lead people to the truth that transforms lives. So I want to take a moment to to say that because we live in a suspicious world. As young people say, uh, sometimes people are just so sus, as they call it. Sus, meaning suspect. And so we don't want to be suspect. We want to be up front. There's nothing hidden. Uh, you can ask us anything. I just want to let you know that as we move forward, especially as the culture and the times are changing. Luke chapter 15, together. We're in this series that we call Actional Pharisee. And what we're looking at are these men that we look back at with hindsight, and we see them as enemies of Jesus. But in fact, in the first century, they were considered heroes, They were considered the watchdogs of the truth. They were considered guardians of God. They were men of great reputation who served God faithfully. They guarded the law of God. They added laws to the law so that they wouldn't break the law. And yet somehow, as we read through the Gospels, we find them on the wrong side of Jesus. We find them on the wrong side of history. And so we're looking at the interchange between Jesus and the Pharisees and we're asking the question... Could it be in my faith journey, could it be in my walk with Christ that I have accidentally become like a Pharisee? Could it be that I've accidentally kind of turned away from the mission and turned to my own viewpoints or my own ideologies or my own law? Could it be that I'm kind of building a law on top of what God has said to live my life and I'm judging others? Last week we talked about the, the game of comparison. That you and I can get easily trapped in what I call the comparison trap, where we're comparing our lives to everybody else so that we feel better about ourselves, or we're comparing our lives to everybody else so that we can feel unworthy. And either one of these is like a Pharisee. Either one of these gets us out of tune with what God has said about us and what God is doing in our lives. And so we talked about this comparison trap that we usually have the wrong standard because we're looking at the wrong people. And we talked about how important it is to measure our lives to Jesus Christ alone. Now I want to look at probably one of the most well-known stories that Jesus ever shares in the Gospels. It's one of the most well-known, one of these two that the majority of people in our country, at least, would have heard of. If you read the Bible or have heard anything of the Bible, these are the stories that probably stick out to you. But before we dive in, I kind of want to set this up because I don't know about you, but I remember back in school, elementary school specifically, we used to have uh, we used to have. Uh, this idea, bring in this this little gift that you want to talk about, and it was called show and tell, right? You bring this in, you show it, and then you tell about it, and you could bring in a lot of different things. Well, one day, uh, my elementary school allowed us to bring in a pet that we wanted. Now, not everybody had a pet, but you could bring in your goldfish, or you could bring in your dog with you, and we had this special moment of show and tell where you could actually bring in your pet, and it was kind of a parent's day, and it was an exciting time. Well, One of the the neighbors that I had actually brought in his pet snake, and uh, it was really cool, especially because all the girls in the class were all like, ew, it's a pet snake, and all the guys, we were like, ew, it's a pet snake, but we didn't say it because we were cool like that. And uh, so anyway, we had this pet snake. Well, anyway, he does the show and tell, talks about his pet snake, why he had a pet snake, and that it was actually a poisonous snake, but it was tame, and, you know, they had it. It was all, all good. It wasn't going to kill anybody, and uh, they allowed it in the school. And you could tell the teacher was a little, little cautious as they, they, they checked in the snake, and he pulled the snake out of this cage that they brought in him. Well, anyway, here to find out, as we're in, he lived right down the street from me, like literally two, three houses down. And uh, one day, we get a call from our neighbor saying, hey, we've got a problem, so-and-so's pet snake got loose. Now, I lived kind of in the hood, I lived in a, a row house, and uh, and so there were house on house on house, and then there was an alley, and there was house and house, house on alley. And, and so, uh, as, as we heard this news, what happened? Well, all of a sudden, you've got a snake on the loose. Well, in our neighborhood where, where we lived, and it's true today, right, when you live in close neighborhoods is the word gets out quickly, and so we're spreading the word to all the neighbors, and the next thing you know, all the neighbors are sitting on the front porch looking for snakes. Like, we're looking for the snake everywhere. And and finally, I mean, it was one of those moments where like a couple days went by, and everywhere you walked, you wonder, is a snake going to get you? Right? You're in the backyard. You let your pet out in the backyard. You're wondering... little postage stamp little yard that you had, you wonder, is this snake going to eat your dog, right? It was like this snake ruled our neighborhood for two days, Uh, I mean, all over the place. Finally, they they found the snake. It was in the house, kind of slithering around. Can you imagine that? That was exactly the fear of all the neighbors, was that this snake was going to kind of slither around, Uh, and eventually, this snake was found. It was found, and there was a sigh of relief. Isn't it true? That when you lose something, there's a bit of sigh of relief when you find it. Especially if it's a potential poisonous snake. But there's a relief that happens when you find something that you think is valuable or you think is worthy to be found, right? If you lose it, you get it, you celebrate it. This is the pattern of life, right? When you lose something and then you get it back, you celebrate that. I want to take a look here at that kind of this pattern. Now, I want to say this. When you and I come to the scripture, believe it or not, We all come with a bit of baggage. We all come with a bit of residue. What do I mean? When we come to the scriptures, we have a lot of insight into the stories we've read about. So we come based upon sermons we've heard. We come based upon podcasts we've listened to. We come based upon books we've read. We come based upon discussions we've had with other believers. Now, not all of those are bad, providing that what we heard was true. However, many a times we come to the text and we miss the main point because we're coming with what we think it says instead of what it actually is trying to tell us. Today, we're gonna look at this story, and yes, it's gonna tell us what we historically believe it says, but it's actually gonna go a little bit deeper to us as we see the fullness of the story. let's Let's take a look together, Luke chapter 15. Jesus is gaining in popularity, he is beginning to gather crowds, he is doing miracles. And so the people are coming around him. We pick up the story in Luke chapter 15, verse 1. It says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to hear him. Now remember we talked about tax collectors. They were the lowest of the low. They were the outcasts. They were the rejects of society because they were traitors. They were Jews who cheated the Jews for the Romans. So they were traitors. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. By the way, can I pause for a minute? The fact that the, the gospel writers want us to know that there are sinners tells you what kind of sinners they were. right? The fact that they label people sinners tells us how bad they are. They Just a label, hey, that's, they're sinners. And they're coming to Jesus. They're coming to hear him. Verse 2, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. They begin to grumble, and they're saying, why does Jesus keep sitting down with sinners? And by the way, this is the third time in this series we have looked at a text where Jesus is sitting down with sinners. They are grumbling. Why? Because their focus is not on the mission. Their focus is on other people. Their focus is comparison. Their focus is themselves. And so they're grumbling. Now, when I want to ask you this question, and I know we're Christians, most of us, and so we probably might not answer this in the way that we think we would, but, or we may not answer at all. But let me ask you this. In your life, who is it that makes you grumble? Who, who is it in our world that makes you grumble? I mean, is that po- this politician? Is it this coworker? Is it that neighbor? Who, who is it that causes you to grumble? Who is it that makes you say, God, why are they even grumbling? In my life. Now, hopefully here you're not saying your spouse. (laughs) Hopefully you're not saying those kids God gave you. But but what is it that makes you grumble? Is it the is it the classmate at school? Is it is it that is it the person you run into constantly at the sporting events? Who is it that makes you grumble and say, you know, I just, God, why do I have to see them again? who is it that makes you grumble? I want you to think about that for a moment because Jesus is going to confront their grumbling with three stories, three parables. And he's going to give these stories to make, make a point to what they're thinking. Now, we're not, not going to read all three of them. We're going to allude to all of them but we're gonna focus on the last of the parables. The first parable is that he shares with them immediately after hearing them grumble, and and they're grumbling because he's eating with sinners and he's eating with tax collectors, he's eating with people that seem unworthy. The first thing he does is share a parable about a shepherd, a shepherd who has a hundred sheep, but he loses one of them so he's left with 99 sheep and it says he searches, he leaves the 99 in the far country and he searches for the one sheep. Now when you think about the economy of that day this actually wouldn't make sense. Why would you put the 99 in, in, a, place of, in a place of vulnerability so that you go reach the one? Why would you go after the one sheep? I mean let's be honest if you go on to school 99% is not bad. I mean, i take a 99% in school, wouldn't you? But, but here he has 100 sheep, but he leaves a 99 to go after the one. And here's the conclusion that Jesus makes. Verse 7, just so I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So there's the concluding point. Is God, the heaven, is rejoicing because of one sinner who repents. So he goes to a second story. The second story is of a woman who has ten coins. She loses one of those coins. We find out in the text that Luke calls them drachmas. Drachmas are the Greek word for the word denarius. A denarius is a day's wage. Now, why would a woman be so upset with losing one coin? Well, this very well could have been part of her inheritance. It could have been part of her retirement plan. It also, many scholars believe, could have been a part of her dowry. Her, her dowry, that would have been a reminder of her marriage even. Or if she was single, a reminder of potentially getting married. So this this coin represented something. You and I, right, you, I don't know if you've had this happen. You go through a drive-thru and you give change. and It never fails when they hand it out to you. Sometimes those coins just slip out of your hand, don't they? And they fall to the ground. And sometimes, depending on how much it is, you just kind of leave them there. Now, unless it's quarters, right, and then you open the door and you pull over and But if a penny drops, most of us probably aren't going to think twice about it, right? A penny drops to the ground. This may be good or bad, right? You pick up the penny. But it drops to the ground. We think, well, somebody else will grab it, right? We don't think deeply about this. For this woman, it says that she grabs her lamp and she begins to search everywhere. She sweeps the house to find the coin. And eventually, she seeks diligently and she finds a coin. Now, here's the concluding statement. Verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Here's the picture, right? Once again, there is joy in heaven. She is spending her money on the oil to look for this coin because the coin is so valuable, and everybody rejoices. It says she calls her friends, she calls her family, she lets them know she found the coin. What was lost is now found. Now we turn to the third parable. And I want to read this a little bit more deeply. Take a look with me, Luke 15, and we'll begin in verse 11. So the third parable and the three parables set that Jesus gives to these Pharisees. He says, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now let's pause here for a moment. In their day. Uh, fathers would leave an inheritance to usually their sons. Now, this is unfair. Uh, This isn't good culturally, but this is the way it was. And so we see them speaking to the culture of the day. Uh, Nowhere is it endorsed this way. But at the time, they would give the inheritance to the sons. This is just the way it was in the Jewish first century. Now, it says here there are two sons, and one son comes to ask for his share. Now notice the younger of them. Now here's how it worked. In their day, the older brother, the older son, would get a double portion. and So he would get a double portion of the inheritance. And then everything else was then divided among the other children. Specifically the sons. So if there were only two sons and the oldest son got a double portion, this younger brother comes and asks for a third of all the father has. So he comes to his father. At this point, he is basically saying to his father, in essence, Father, you are dead to me. Give me my inheritance. So when he comes and asks this question, he's literally saying, Father, in my eyes, you're going to be already dead. Give me what is rightfully mine. This would not have been given to him until his father died, but he's asking for it early. Now watch what happens. Verse 13. It says, A father divides his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. I love this word squandered. It literally means to scatter, like seed. He scatters his property, scatters his goods. He scatters his money in reckless living. The word reckless there is where we get our word prodigal. Prodigal living. Verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country And he began to be in need. So all of a sudden, there is a market crash that happens. There is a famine that takes place. And so now he's in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. It says that he was left wanting to eat the leftovers of the pigs he was so desperate. He blew his money in the midst of a recession, and it was gone, and he was desperate. By the way, notice this younger brother. He goes to his father, you're dead to me, give me my goods, and at the end he is left with nothing. He is left in a desperate situation. He is lost. He is gone. He is dead. He has got nothing else left in his life. He is eating from the pig slops, or he's hoping to. Notice it doesn't say he does. It says that he's thinking about it because that's all he's got. He's willing to eat the leftovers of the pigs. Now watch what happens. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I want you to notice he is rehearsing what he's going to say to his father. He's saying, Father, just treat me as a hired servant. Just act like I'm a paid employee. And in fact, it would be true. Not only was his father dead to him, but he was considered dead before his family. He says, I'm going to go back and I'm going to ask him to treat me like a hired, just to hire me. Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. By the way, old men in that day would not run. They wore robes. It was not likely to run. In fact, many old men didn't even wear the sash what's called the gird, they gird up the loins. You ever heard that expression? The idea they would take the sash and they would tie up the robes so they could run. An older man wouldn't do this. This, is considered, uh, this was considered uh, unacceptable for an old man to run. It was considered kind of a, you, you don't run. It's unbecoming of a, a gentleman who is especially a rich man. And notice what happens. I love this. He came and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, notice what the son rehearsed, he's beginning to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's doing his rehearsal. But the father said, notice the father interrupts his rehearsed speech and says, wait a minute here. He calls his servants and says, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let Let us eat and celebrate. I love this. By the way, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, kill the fatted calf and let's celebrate. You know what I love about this story? Jesus has proven there's no vegetarians in the Bible. Get the filet mignon rolling. Get the ribs going. Well, I guess they wouldn't eat the, the ribs, but you know what I'm getting at kill the fatted calf. Let's go. We're going to party. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. The father throws a party. Now I want you to think about this pattern, right? We see the same pattern in every story. There is something that is lost. It's a sheep. It's a coin. It's a son. There is something that is found by the good grace of those searching. And then what we see is a celebration. Wow. Look at this moment. We found it. Let's celebrate. Kill the fatted calf. all the friends gather the sheep we see this pattern this pattern throughout the scripture something lost something found celebration can I tell you this is the essence of the entire gospel you and I were created we rebelled against God because of sin we said God I don't want your way We find ourselves lost and wondering in life, trying to find an answer. And we try to satisfy ourselves with good things. We try to satisfy ourselves by taking good things and making them ultimate things. And it always fails. It always fails. And we're lost and wondering. And in our mess, the Father sought us out. God came in the flesh and died on the cross and walked out of a grave to say, I can save you. I have found you. I I can bring you home. And and the Bible here, Jesus in these parables is saying, heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. You and I know this, right? Our lives are lost. We're messed up. There's no hope. But what happens, God rescues us. God finds us. God brings us in. And there's celebration in heaven when we come to know the glorious truth of Jesus Christ. We know this. But can I tell you, Jesus doesn't stop here. In fact, up until this point, he hasn't drawn it to what he wants to say to the Pharisees. Up until this point, he has made three great stories that describe the heart of the Father for the lost. But what about the Pharisees who are righteous, who are good? I want you to take a look because we assume the parable of the prodigal son is what this is really about. Can I tell you, this is not actually the parable of the prodigal son. That it is, there's a secondary parable here. There's a parable within a parable that Jesus is trying to make the point with. It is the parable of the elder brother. It's a second half of the story that Jesus wants to shape our spiritual worldview with. So here's the question I want to ask as we dive into this Is it possible that we could be lost while still at home? Is it possible that we could be lost? While still at home. Now now listen, yes, we, we have a relationship with God. Yes, we're with the Father. Yes, we, we, we aren't lost in the sense of we're nowhere near. But could it be that we are lost while yet we're still at home? This is where the story goes here. Could it be that we are lost while still at home? Could it be that we are home with God in a relationship with the creator of the universe, and yet we're far away from him and his heart of grace and disconnected to his purposes for this world in our lives? Could it be that we are home with the Father, and yet we're disconnected from the heart of the Father for the world around us? Could it be we are lost while still at home? Take a look with me at what happens next. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked what what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. Notice this. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. I want you to notice this older brother. Here's the story. Here's the punchline that Jesus is trying to make. Could we be lost while still at home? Notice the language here. Go back to verse 25. You know what you notice is that this son wasn't home. I mean, notice the language. Now, his older brother, he's in the field. He hasn't left the father. He's in the field. He drew near and he heard music in the house. What does it mean? That's his house. I mean, he gets the rest of the inheritance. It's his property now. Right? The father's still alive, but he knows all of this is going to be his. He hears music coming. Notice, all of the language here are that there are signs and symbols of someone who's at home. Someone who is at home experiencing the rights and privileges and duties of being at home. He's in the field. He can go in the house. He hears the music. He is at home. He is with the Father. He hasn't hasn't left. He's there with them. But notice his reaction. He calls a servant. Again, he's at home. He calls one of his own servants and says, what's going on? And he says, your brother has come and your father has thrown a party. And notice his reaction, verse 28. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. I want you to notice, he comes to the doorway of the house, he comes to the threshold, and it says he is angry, and he does not go in. I want to make a couple of observations here. First of all, we see that this older brother is bitter toward his younger brother. He is bitter toward his younger brother. Think about this for a moment. Imagine being this older brother. You were there. You you were there the moment that the younger brother came to the father and said, Dad, I know I've been a snotty-nosed kid. I know I've gotten my brother in trouble a couple times. I know I've been that guy that back-talked you and Mom, but listen, I'm done with you guys. You're dead to me. Give me my inheritance and let me run. You watched as your father gave him his property that wasn't his yet. He had to liquidate his stuff in order to give it to him. And you watched the heartbreak as your father sent his youngest son out in rejection. Knowing legally he was no longer going to be a son. You were there. You were there as shame began to build up in the family because someone rebelled against your father. You you were there as, as you... You saw the pain of your mom and dad, right? The rumors that would begin to swirl. And then you would be responsible to now pull double duty in the field. Imagine this this is you. And all of a sudden, one day, as you watch your dad go out on the horizon every single day and wonder, is the son going to come back? Every single day, the father's looking. He's looking for the the younger brother. And you're out there working. You're working tirelessly. And all of a sudden, one day, you're out there working. And you're out there giving everything because this is part of your inheritance. This is part of your property. This is for your father. And all of a sudden, you hear some music being played in the distance. You take the tractor and ride it into the, the barn. They didn't have tractors then, just so you know. But for the sake of our story, you get it. All of a sudden you hear music playing in a celebration. You're like, what is going on? Like, I mean, I'm kind of in charge here. I'm the older brother. This this will be my property. I'm I'm doing due diligence. I'm working hard. I've been in the sun. I've been working. You hear this music and you ask a servant, hey, what's going on in there? Oh, your brother came home. Your brother. And they're celebrating. Can you imagine the thoughts that flooded his mind? I mean, that brother who rejected your dad, that brother who walked away, that brother who shamed your family, that brother that left you with all the chores, now all of a sudden he's home. Listen, you can feel the bitterness toward the brother. You can feel it in this story. How would you respond? How would you feel? Wouldn't you be angry? Isn't it true? Let's just take sports, for example. When you're celebrating a sports team, like you don't celebrate when they lose, do you? Like, you don't throw a party because your team loses. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen that way. Right, you don't all of a sudden throw a ticker tape parade because you lost in the World Series or the championship game. No, instead there's depression. Think about this for a moment. Here is the son who lost. I mean, he lost. If anybody lost in this story, it's the younger brother, and yet they're throwing a party for him. He shamed the family. This is the picture. There is anger. You wouldn't be throwing a party for the losing team. Could it be for you and I that we get angry at what God has done for someone else? Now, you and I may not call it anger, but in reality it is. It's bitterness. Could could it be that we see someone else and say, God, how could you bless them? How could you be so good to them? Now, we don't express it that way, but we feel it, we think it. Could could it be that we see that person getting a promotion at work and thinking, God, they don't even believe in you? Could could it be that we see, have a marriage situation and it's difficult and you might think, well, man, why is it that everybody who just doesn't follow God have it easier? Like they're living their life and they seem to be happy about it. I know a couple that did that, they... They, they had struggles in their marriage. They were going through marriage counseling together, and finally they just like threw their hands in the and They said, you know what? We see unbelieving couples who are just living freely, and we're just going to live freely. Why, why are we trying to do this right? Just because they couldn't handle the stress. And they walked away from, from the church. They walked away from Christian friends who were pushing them to do what is right. Why? Because they saw the world and said, well, well it seems like they're just prospering. It seems like it's going well for them. It seems like they're happy. Or how about when you see your kids, or someone else's kids that seem to be in the best position on the, on the sports team. And you're like, God, they're not even a good family. Why would their kids get playing time? Or how about it seems that those people always have nice things, and you're looking at life and saying, God, I'm trying to follow you. Why is my life better? Why, why is it, right? Why are they getting everything good? Have you ever felt that? Now, listen, you might not admit it publicly, right? But you felt it. I felt it. As a pastor, I felt it. Don't, don't, like, leave the church over this, but just confession moment. I felt it, right? You, you, you see, I remember when I pastored in Maryland, I, right, there was this other church that just, I mean, the, the pastor had a, had a dirty mouth, and, like, he tried to do everything. He it was, it was cool, but he's cool kind of that way. And, man, people would go there, and it was like, why are you even, like, I don't even know if they're a church, really. Like, they only preach the gospel. And it's so hard, right? You see people and you're like, what are they thinking? Why would people, right? It's inside. You feel that. You feel that. It's there. And you're like, God, why is that happening? Why would people even go there? Like, what do they, what do they have? And it's there, right? And you begin to build in spiritual jealousy. Can I tell you what I've learned in my life? That jealousy is really a form of anger filled with insecurity. That's what jealousy is. Jealousy is really anger that is built upon an insecurity that you and I have. And how easy it is to get jealous of other people, right? In our own church, we've seen this, right? Where where someone comes in and you're like, wait, wait, they can't go to Crossroads. Do you know what they've done? Do, do, do Do you know where they've been? They probably aren't really even saved, are they? And we begin to label, to build our concept Because we're angry about what God is doing in someone else's life. Now, if we're all being honest, we've been there at least one time in our lives. We've been there at some point where we felt that. And the easy thing to do in that moment is to start to talk. Can you imagine? Maybe this older brother, if he had some friends around, would have said, Hey, that younger brother's back. Can you believe that? And my dad threw up a party for him. Like, he doesn't deserve that. He doesn't deserve that. Like, why is my father being so kind to him? He hasn't deserved anything. By the way, isn't it true? This is exactly what mercy is. Mercy and grace is undeserved. And yet here's a father showing, here's a father showing him something he didn't deserve. Could it be that we're angry at what God has done for someone else? Could it be there's a little bit of bitterness? Now, I'm not saying, please hear me. I am not saying that sin should not move us. I am not saying that we should be affected by watching sin around the world. I'm not saying that it should not affect us. It should. The Bible says that God calls us to expose the work of darkness. Certainly, we should respond to darkness. But the question is, what is our first reaction? Is it, how dare they? Is it, God, how could you do this with them? What is our first reaction, which indicates a great deal about our hearts? Whether we see the mission of God Oh, we're a Pharisee. Could it be that we're missing out? Could it be that our anger reveals our expectations and our expectations are wrong? That leads to the second point, and that is this. Not only is he bitter toward his brother, but he is resentful to the father. He's resentful. Notice his response in verse 28. But he's angry, and he refuses to go in. His father comes out and entreats him Verse 29, but he answers his father, Look, these many years. Now, I want you to notice there are really two nevers in this text. I want to show you these two nevers, never statements. He says, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Father, I have been nothing but good to you. I have, I have good theology. I attend church. I go to Bible study in small group. I give. I serve in a ministry. I pray. I read the Bible. I listen to Christian music in the car, on the radio, when I'm in a good mood. Father, I have been nothing but good to you. I've never disobeyed you. Notice what he says next. Yet you never Gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. I want you to notice that. Notice he says young goat. In their day, poorer people ate goats. Goats was considered a delicacy for those who didn't have a lot of money. Why? Because goats were available readily. Fatted calves were considered for the rich. And so when we see this story in the beginning, he, he, he kills a fatted calf for the younger brother. But this statement is actually very a statement of sarcasm in this story. Now again, this is a parable. But Jesus is making this point that, that he says, Father, you have never even given me a poor little young goat that doesn't even have a lot of meat on it. I remember a trip I took years ago to South Africa, and uh, we were doing uh, a church uh, planting and uh, training of pastors, and um, they decided to have a party one night, and they brought a goat, and it was hilarious to watch because literally they grabbed the back of the horns of the goat, and once you have the back of the horns of the ho- goat, horns of the goat, you can actually steer it whatever you want. So they grabbed the horn and they brought it over, and they said, they looked at me and were like, "Hey, you guys want this?" And we're like, "I don't know what we do with it. We can't take it home with us." Sure, and they just take a knife out and just whoosh, right there, and it was like. I was in shock. Like I, I didn't expect it. And then they they skin it and stretch it over this old little fence, and they burned it, and and we ate it. This this little goat. It wasn't a lot of meat. It was horrible meat. Tasted bad. Um, I survived, but it was it it was it was a delicacy for them, right? This is the image. He's saying, "Listen, Dad, you've never even given me a young goat. You've you've, you fatted calf. By the way, whose fatted calf was that?" In essence, that fatted calf was the older brother's. It was his inheritance. Everything that was the father's was his. It was not the younger brother's. It was his. Here he is, and you can, see the, uh, you can see a bit of the resent toward the father. He's saying, listen, father, you have shown the younger brother better than I've, you've given to me. He resented the father's joy, and he refused to share in it. Could it be that you and I, could it be that we're aggravated? God hasn't done more for you. Could it be that we are aggravated that God hasn't done more for us? I want you to notice the transactional relationship that he's having with the Father. Father, I've done this for you, but you haven't done this for me. Notice the transaction. I've done this for you, but you haven't done this for me, but, verse 30, but when this son of yours came, notice he doesn't call him brother, he calls him son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fatted calf for him. Listen, Father, isn't it time that I get mine? Isn't it time that my life goes smoother? Isn't it time that it goes well for me? Why is it that they get to have the good thing and they get to prosper and life seems to be easy, but for me it seems to be suffering and difficulty and strife? God, why isn't it that I can't have mine? That's what the older brother's saying. And could it be in our world, could it be in our world that we get aggravated that God hasn't done more for us? We take our eyes off of the reality of our salvation, and we put it on the world around us, and we begin to say, God, why aren't you blessing me? Not just materially, but why is my life not easy? Why is it difficult? By the way, I want you to notice the contrast between these two characters. The younger rejected the grace of the Father to pursue his own desires, but the older brother rejects the grace of the Father to pursue his own justification. I've done this, father. The lost brother comes and says, I've got nothing. Just make me a hired servant. Notice the younger received into thinking he was insufficient for what the father was going to give him. But the older brother was deceived into thinking he was faultless and sufficient. Notice, he's like, I got this. I've done this. I've accomplished this. Let me ask you a question. What is more dangerous? The lust of the younger brother or the resent of the older brother? Which is more dangerous? The lust of the younger brother or the resent of the older brother? That's the question you and I are left with in this story, is which one is more dangerous? And Jesus here is making a point to say the danger is the resent of the older brother. It is the heart of the older brother. Why? Because the younger brother needed rescued. The younger brother realized where he was at in the pit, in the pig's pen. But the older brother was sitting in the pews. The older brother wasn't in the pig pen. He was okay. Jesus here making this point. I want to show you the end of this story. And that is, we see this wrapped up. Take a look at what happens. Verse 31. And he said to him, son, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost. And he is found. What we find in the end is the grace of the Father. The grace. This is point three. The grace of the Father. I want you to notice he says son. The word here is the word child. The generic term child. And it literally has the idea of an endearing term. He is saying to him son. Listen man. Son just, just hear me out here. And then I want you to see the prescription that the father gives. By the way, you know what I find interesting? Go, go, go back for a moment to verse 28. Notice this, but he was angry and fused, going, but his father came out and entreated him. His father literally came out and begged him. You want know to notice? You notice the father went both after the younger brother and the older brother? Do you notice that? Both the younger brother, he's looking for him and it runs him with compassion in his heart. Notice the older brother. What does the father do? He goes out to the, out of the house in the midst of the party, and he, he comes out and he begs him. That's the word there. He entreats him. The father comes after both of them. Look at the tenderness of the grace of the father. The father here showing great grace, and then he gives his prescription. He gives a prescription to the Pharisee, to the older brother. Take a look at it. He says, son, you are always with me. Always with me. He reminds him that there is a biting presence abiding presence son you always are with me you're you're in you don't have to worry right yes life might not always be fair but you don't have to worry you're you're in you're always with me what i love about this is is a father is calling him to trust here's the key point let me tell you this this is so important here's why trust and faith is so important to continue to expand and grow in the father in god in Christ. Why is our faith so important? Why is it so important to be a part of a church? Why is it so important to be in a small group? Why is it so important to have these relationships? Why is it so important to be in the Word? Here's why. Because if you trust, you can't be jealous. Think about it. Isn't this true in marriage? I'm not jealous over my wife. Why? Because I trust her. I know her heart. I know the purity of her heart. I trust her. When there is jealousy, there is mistrust. But where there is trust, there is no jealousy. So what is the father saying? He's saying, listen, you're always with me. I'm always with you. Trust me. Trust me. And in trust, you don't have to be angry and jealous. In trust, you know my heart. You know what I'm trying to accomplish. And then secondly, here's the prescription. You are always with me, abiding presence. And all that is mine is yours. There's abiding provision. All that I have is yours, and here's the point. Here's the point. Gratitude and resent cannot exist in the same place. Or, Or let me say it this way. You cannot be grateful and resentful at the same time. You can't. If you are grateful for what God has provided for you, you, cannot, then not, you will not resent what the Father has done for others. If you resent what God has done for others, then it's probably the fact that you aren't living a grateful life. Why? Because when you seek the Father's heart and not His stuff, you'll want what the Father wants. That's the image here. That's the image of this story and at the end he says it is fitting to celebrate, be glad for your brother who is lost is found, he's dead but he's alive. Celebrate with me. See, when you understand the Father's heart, you understand this reality. So my question is, why did Jesus put this second half of the story in this parable? Why did he include this? Because the question is, could it be that we are lost while still at home? Now I'm not talking about lost like the younger brother like the world, but maybe we're lost. You know, there are three possibilities here, even in this room. There are three possibilities right now online. There are three possibilities there in Lexington. There are three possibilities today. First of all, some of you, you're like the prodigal. You are running your own way. You have rejected the Father. Your back has been turned. You are living in sin. Sin has overwhelmed you. The Bible says you are a sinner. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's not a label that doesn't, doesn't escape any of us. We all are sinners in need of a Savior. And maybe for you, you've turned your back on God. You've went your own way. And God has been faithful. God has been so good to come and die on a cross for you and walk out of a grave for you to bring you salvation. And for you, maybe you're the prodigal and it's time to come home. It's time to come to Jesus Christ who died and rose again. And today could be the day you transfer your trust from yourself to Jesus alone for salvation. That his way is indeed able to find you. And he has found you. And he can give you a new life. Secondly, there are others of us, we're kind of like the Pharisees in the sense that we're working our way. We're actually not at home yet, we're lost. But for us, we're lost and we've got a lot of religion, but we don't have a relationship with the creator of the universe. We're doing all these right things, we're checking boxes, but we're not reflecting truth. And for you, maybe the same. You're not overwhelmed in sin, but you're a sinner. You're a sinner because the Bible says even good deeds are like filthy rags. And so all your good works are really just trying to add up favor for heaven. But this is the point. You can't work your way to heaven. You can't get there. That's what the Pharisees thought. They thought their sufficiency and goodness and religiosity would get them there. But guess what? Your religiosity won't get you to heaven. The Bible says not by works lest anyone should boast. You can't work your way there. And today, with open hands and open arms and open hearts, you would say, God, I, I, need to, I need to set aside my religious duties and say, God, I surrender. Faith is not a work, faith is trust. And I want to trust in you. And then a third option are there are many of us here, we, we, we're, we're believers, we're at home. We're at home with God, we have a relationship with, with God through Jesus Christ. But we're looking out in the world and we're saying, God, why is that happening to them? Or we're looking at the loss and we're saying, how dare they? And we're thinking that people cannot be rescued. We're forgetting the rescue mission of God. We're forgetting the heart of the Father toward the lost. We're so busy, wrapped up in our political schemes. Listen, I want you to notice here the brother inquires about what's happening in the house, but he doesn't join the party. And can I say some of us were inquiring about the world? We're asking questions. Well, God, why is this happening? Or why is that happening? Why does it seem like this political persuasion is working? And not saying we should not be politically active, but but some of us were asking those questions, but we're not joining in God's work. Let me ask you a question: When was the last time you shared the gospel with anybody? I'm not saying that as an indictment. I'm saying there's a challenge. Like, we can complain about the world and say, well, well this world's just going to hell in a handbasket. Or we can say, God, I am a part of your rescue mission. I'm a part of the calling. I need to have your heart. I need, to be, I need to be in tune with what you're saying, what you're doing. Because if we don't see that, no wonder the world is going apart. If we don't see the rescue mission, if we don't see the heart of the Father, listen, could we be missing the Father's heart to take the gospel to a culture filled with rebellious prodigals? Could it be that God is calling us, can I tell you just like them, if that's you, if that's me, can I tell you just like them, we need grace today. We need grace. Because if you underestimate the power of grace to to save other people's lives, then you are underestimating the need for grace in your own life. Let me repeat that. If you underestimate the power of grace to save other people, then you're underestimating the need for grace in your own life. And I think for far too long, If I could just be honest, as Christians in our world today, for far too long, we have sat back and said, well, this is just the way the world is going. And we have forgotten the heart of the Father to go and spread this message that those who are lost can be found. They can be found because of Jesus Christ. And I believe that God is not finished. In fact, I believe until He returns home, until He comes back, until He returns to take us home, He is not done yet. And until I have breath, until you have breath, until that calling ends, until Christ returns, He's called us, He's called us to be a part of that. To be a part, not taking those people in in, in the pig pens and bringing them in to relationship with the Father. Would you stand with me as we pray? And As we pray, we are going to end with this reminder that we come before God open handed. We come before Him. Maybe for you, you're a Pharisee right now and I've been there. I've got to check my soul every day of how I view the world around me, it's frustrating. I feel it. I can feel frustrated. I can feel bitter. I can feel resentment to build, and we have to pause and say, God, God, we need to remember your mission. Give us the heart of the mission, God, that you came to seek and save the lost, that our job is to share the gospel. Our job is to live the gospel. Our job is to reflect the gospel. Maybe you're here and you don't know Christ. and today could be the day of your salvation. Maybe you're here and you're trying to work your way to heaven. No, you'll never get there. It, 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 you got to have faith, trust. It, it's not your works that get you to heaven. It's, it's faith by grace through faith. It's, it's, it's a work of God. It's a gift of God. All you do is receive that gift. God, I want to thank you for this reminder. I confess to you that it's so easy to look at the world and be frustrated. It's so easy to look at the world and be wrapped up in the schemes that are happening. It's so easy to just have some political persuasion and, and public opinion and ideas about the world, but God to not do what you called us to do because God, I believe there's a, still a world that is in desperate need of you. I believe there is a world that is ready to hear about your gospel. I believe it, God. I believe there are people right now around us, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our sports teams. There are people that, that Lord, they're willing to have the conversation about faith, or willing. But God, we don't open our mouths. We, we don't say anything. And so like, like the older brother, we can complain about everything. We can gripe about everything. We can complain that the world's just going its own way. And, and God, we can get involved in the celebration of you changing lives. God, I, I don't want to be caught on the side of just complaining about the world. I want to be caught on the side of, of sitting down with sinners and sharing with them the glorious truth that has changed my life, God. We may not have all the right words to say, but what we know is you change our lives, God. You've rescued us. We know that you died and that you rose again, that you're coming again, and that you can you, you have seek, sought, and saved that which is lost, and we're one of them. God, there is lost, but there's also found, and that we can celebrate with you. So, God, give us the heart to see the world the way you see it. Give us the heart. to to, to see the world with the eyes that you see it, a heart of mission, a heart of love, a heart that says the altar is open and we can come. It's God, it's in your name. Our Father, our good, good Father, our faithful Father, our gracious Father, our merciful Father who's rescued us out of the pig pen so that we can be like the brother in the house having an inheritance that is ours. And now may we live for your glory, Jesus. It's in your name.